Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Wesley. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Back in the summer, we did a verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians, and uh, we intentionally skipped chapter 2 because it uh, is nicely packaged as a series in and of itself. And so we're beginning a new series this week. It'll last between now and the next five weeks called Smoke and Mirrors. And basically what we're going to uncover through this study is basically Paul addressing the issues of of the fallacies and the untruths about Jesus in the first century. And of course, it's not just in the first century this has taken place. It's happened down through the centuries, including in our day where Jesus is misrepresented in the world. And so what Paul is carefully doing in the first seven verses of chapter 2 of Colossians is he's basically talking about the truth of who Jesus is and the fact that he's all we need and he is enough. And that's basically what he's trying to, uh, the point of what he's trying to say here. So he's really debunking the mischaracterizations of who God, or what God did in and through Jesus himself. Now, if you were to look at a definition of this whole idea of smoke and mirrors, here's what you would find. It's something that is described as smoke and mirrors is intended to make you believe that something is being done or is true when it's not. And we live in a world right now that is creating all the untruths, all the mischaracterizations of who Jesus is. And so this morning, we're going to be addressing what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 2. And we're looking at the whole idea of the truth of who Jesus is. So look at the introduction. The best way not to be taken in by that which is false is to know where our no goes from facts to experience that which is true. You see, that's the problem I think many times in the Christian community is we have a lot of knowledge of who Jesus is. We, we've, for, for some of us, we've been raised with that knowledge. For some of us, we can't think of a time uh, back in our life where we didn't know who Jesus was. But the point is we're living in a world that's trying to basically shape Jesus in their own image. They're trying to bring the doctrines and the things that are said of him, about him, into some kind of idea of what they would like him to be. And the Bible's very clear as to who he is. Now think about this. The best way to know what is false is to be grounded in what is true. It's said that if you go and and look, uh, there are counterfeiters uh, who are out there duplicating our, our monies, basically. And many of you probably have known that. Maybe, maybe you've tried it yourself. I don't know. But anyway, but, but, but the point is, from what we gather, they say there are so many different types of counterfeits when it comes to our money that basically they don't look at all the different things in which it could be manipulated. They look at what is truly the dollar itself or what's, what the whole denomination is all itself. And so they look at that. And so anything that differs from that, because they know it so well, they can recognize what is false. And I believe that we as Christians, we need to do the same thing, especially as it relates to what our faith looks like, not only in Jesus, but also what the Word of God says to us. So Paul, again, is basically saying, Jesus is enough. Jesus is all you need when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the life that God has ordained for you to have. And he's basically shaping all this into saying this to the church here in Colossae that he has a prayer for them. So look at your outline. 
he has a prayer that truth would be experienced. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. As for many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul is basically saying, there's many of you I have not met personally. There's many of you who I've not sat across from. I haven't personally taught you. But I want you to know there's an inner struggle within me that I'm struggling with because I'm hearing some things that are causing my struggle. He's basically saying that he's praying for them because they have some that have gone astray. And so Paul's struggle, his agony, was that believers were being pulled away from the truth and introduced to false philosophies and deceptive thinking. So it appears that in this passage, Paul's prayer was that they not be pulled away, that they would once again ground themselves in the Word of God. And he basically says something like this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says this, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro about every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things unto him who is Christ. So Paul is basically saying there comes a point where when we begin to look in our lives and we begin to try to measure ourselves by the truth of God's word, not the mischaracterizations of it and the mischaracterizations of who Jesus is, but when we truly see it, that we will know what to do with it when we see it. And so look on your outline. His prayer is that truth will be appropriated. But how? But how? Now, that he's basically saying that their understanding would bring about several things. And the first thing we see here is in verse 2, but the first thing is hearts strengthened. That their hearts would be strengthened. And, and basically the word uh, encouraged, look at what it says in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. The word encouraged the, the Greek word for it is perikaleo, which means literally to come alongside of. And the terminology and the thought behind what he's saying here and the context of what he's saying, he's basically saying that to come alongside of, to comfort, to come alongside of, to strengthen, and possibly even to come alongside of, to reinforce, to reinforce what they already know. With false teachers all around them, they needed comfort, they needed strength, and they needed what they did know to be reinforced in their life. And so his prayer is that that would take place. But secondly, his prayer continued that their love would be undeniable. Their love would be undeniable. Look at what he says in verse 2 again. Being knit together how? In love. The word here, knit together, is where we get the word unite. It literally means to bring together. And he's saying the word of God is intended to unify us and bring us together. Jesus even prayed in that prayer there recorded in the Gospel of John, especially when you get to chapter 17. Paul was, excuse me, Jesus was basically saying, I pray that we would be united with one another, or that you would be united with one another, but not only with one another, but also with God our Father. And his prayer centered around the unity that comes. And the only way that unity comes is through a love that's undeniable. Paul expounds this. Look over at chapter 3. Look at verse 12. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. 
bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But then he says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So Paul is basically reiterating there in Colossians chapter 3 what he's trying to say here. He's basically saying, let your love demonstrate itself. Let your love be undeniably seen in and through others. But then his prayer continued. And this is where it gets interesting. His prayer continues to, to, be, to a point where a mystery is understood. A mystery is understood. Look at verse 2 again. And attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. When he says riches there, that word could be abundance, that it would be full of the full assurance of understanding. And basically that word understanding is key when we begin to see what he's trying to say here. He's basically saying that you may have insight, that you may know how to evaluate something. That you can look at it, evaluate it, and come to a proper understanding as to what that is. And y'all, that's what we need today in the Christian community. We need the, enough insight and understanding to be able to evaluate what is being said. Is it of the Word of God or is it not? Is it, is it who Jesus truly is or is it a mischaracterization? And he's basically saying that. So he goes on and then he says in verse 2, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. That you can have insight, that you can evaluate it in such a way that it forces you to come back to this knowledge of the mystery of God. And it carries the idea, when it says the mysteries of God, it's basically saying, because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You see, the fallacies that we see in our world today come about either through the enemy himself we know he can do that. He introduced that to us in Genesis chapter 3 when he went to Eve. We know he's good at that. But the, the thing that we need to also understand is that the world can create these things, these fallacies, these ideas. So he's basically saying there's something that Jesus is all about. He's enough. He's everything you need. And not only that, he stands out and above everything else. And he's basically saying as it, he carries the idea there's nothing like him. You can't compare because everything that comes from the world and from the enemy is opposite of who he truly is. And so then he goes on, he says this, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's basically saying hidden. It can only be found in him. Again, he is enough. He's all you need. And all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's talking about the fact these are, is where, this is where you find the gold nuggets for living. This is where you find truth. This is where you build your, these are things you build your life on. And so when he says understanding here, he's talking about applying the biblical principles to our everyday life. And he says, as a result, as we live those things, we will have the assurance that those things actually do what they say they're going to do. You see, I think so many times when we look at Scripture, we begin to look at Scripture, and, and for many people, they see God as this tyrant. 
And he's over here and he says, thou shall not do this, thou shall not do that, thou do this, thou do that, and all that. And we think that, that he's some tyrant who just wants his own way. That's not what we see in Scripture. What we're seeing in Scripture is in those commands, if I said so many times before, he's trying to provide for us and he's trying to protect us. He's trying to show us the best path to a life that can still be lived in a dysfunctional world. He's basically telling us, yes, I love you so much in such a way that if you'll live these things, you'll get the better, best and better outcome. But the only way you can do that is to know the truth in and of itself. And you must know where the truth originates, and it originates from God the Father, but then presented by Jesus himself. And so what we're seeing here is Paul is trying his best to basically saying, you need to understand things correctly when it comes from God. And again, look at the process here. Truth finds solid footing in a strong heart and works itself out in love for fellow believers, resulting in a deeper understanding and a deep conviction. You see, when truth is not known and not lived, it breeds doubt, defeat, and deceit. And you see, I see so many people, and they know the Word of God, and they know facts about the Word of God, about Jesus himself, about what they think God is saying, but they don't live those principles. Those things are not appropriated to them in such a way that they're actually living in the assurance of those things in which God intended. So Paul's prayer is that truth will be appropriated, that truth will be known, understood, and then also lived. Now, look at your outline. Paul's prayer was not only that truth be appropriated, but also that error will be avoided. And that's the part that gets so many of us tripped up. And so where does he, what does he go to? What does he say here in Colossians chapter 2? He's basically he's going from deceptive, persuasive words. He's saying those words are out there. He's saying those words at times seem to be very convincing. But look what he says in verse 4. Now this I say lest anyone should deceive you with, with, with persuasive words. And it's literally, the idea here is words attributed to a skillful lawyer or, or someone who can debate. Now, I want you to think about this. How many of you um, at times have heard opposing views and you come away and you believe this side and that side? Have you ever noticed how sometimes, how sometimes that happens? I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, I'll hear one side of the argument presented. I'm sitting there I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that, that's good. That might, that's a valid point. And then I hear the other side, sometimes the opposite. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a valid point. <laughs> how, how many of you have been there? I mean, we live in an age of information. How many of you have noticed that everything is, uh, in our day and age is held up and scrutinized and evaluated? In, in, in some ways, that's, that's good. Things should be. But what's happening so many times is we, if we don't know the Word of God, sometimes we don't know where to align ourselves up. And so what we do is we count on a cheap way out for someone to fill in those gaps for us. And for some of us, we look at news outlets. How many of you are guilty of that? I've been guilty of that. 
And so sometimes I'll take my point of view from a news outlet. Sometimes I'll look at a, a political party and I'll take my point of view from a political party. And, and, and by the way, there's those that seem to be more aligned than the others. I get all that. And some of you would defend that to your life, to, to death. I understand that too. But the point is, the only thing that matters is the truth of God's word. That is the only thing that will stand beyond where we are today into eternity is the truth of God's word. And by the way, all these things that are around that we're taking our viewpoints from, they're man-made. They're temporary. You know what I've found? If you look at political parties and you study what they stand for and the platforms in which they, are, they have, you'll see that they change all the time. You'll see that. I mean, 30 years ago, it would have made sense to be identified with this political party. Not necessarily so today. And, and those things change. Why? Because they're man-made. Because there's, no, there's nothing to ground the truth in which you, what they believe. And by the way, isn't it amazing how you can hear politicians talk today, and they seem so confident about what they're saying, and you find footage of them 20 years ago, and they're saying the exact opposite of what they're saying today? That's because it's all man-made. The truth of God's word is what lasts forever. That's what we need to be building our lives upon. And so therefore, Paul was saying there will be those who will try to turn you to error by smooth talk, by persuasive words, by what many would say credible arguments. But he's saying hold it up to the word of God. How do we do that? Well, we go from deceptive, persuasive words to steadfast faith. Steadfast faith. Look at verse 5. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul was basically saying, I'm hearing things about what's going on over there. And, and there's some things that, that not only I'm praying for, there's some things that I hope that when I come to see you, if I come to see you, I'm going to be able to see those things. And one of those things is basically, he says, good order. That's what you'll find in the text. It's a military term that literally means to stand shoulder to shoulder. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the fact that a church can be called a church family. I love the fact that in Scripture we're, we're called to, to the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what the Bible says. Now, I'm not one of those that walks up and says, hello, brother so-and-so, how you doing? I, I don't, that, that doesn't feel right to me for some reason, but anyway. But the fact is, you are my brother. You are my sister. We're a family. But not only are we a family, we're, we're, if you really think about it, we're called to stand shoulder to shoulder against the fallacies of this world, against the untruths, against the mischaracterizations of who Jesus is that is seen throughout this world. That's some of the terminology that we read, that we stand shoulder to shoulder defending truth. And would you say that's important? Yes, more than ever, that we defend truth. So we need each other. But then he talks about this disconnection from the body of Christ. He says it creates deceptive and failure in life and in marriage. I love the fact that God called me to this church back in 1989. In 1989, I moved here from Wilmington. My wife and I, we had two children. Uh, my son, Jonathan, was seven when we came. My daughter was 10 months old. 
and, and we came here, we're going to make a life here, and uh, God called me into the ministry, that's one thing that I really felt certain about, so I went to Gardner-Webb, got my degree, and, and, and what was so amazing is, and I've shared this with you so many times, it, I'm convinced now that I look back at life and how it played out, how many of you are at an age now you're starting to look back as much as you're looking forward, <laughs> and you begin to see God's hand in it all? And those things that you thought were going to destroy you <laughs> didn't destroy you, that made you stronger. But not only that, there were things that you misunderstood that when you look back on it now, you see it more clearly than ever. And I am convinced that God, and I've said this so many times before, but it's so true. God brought me here in 1989, not to become the pastor of this church one day so much. That was important, too, for the call of God, but more so to the fact that God brought me into a family that nurtured me, that stood with me, that watched me when I had failures, that, that encouraged me when, when God did something in and through me that even blew my mind. But not only that, he brought us here to raise our family in a wonderful church, a wonderful church. There, there were people who poured into not only my, uh, my wife's life, but also poured into my children. And I'm convinced. Some people say, well, and, and listen, I, they're not that great. But anyway, I, have, I do have good children, okay? I do. But, but don't go over the top with that either, okay? But some people, I've actually had people say, how, how do you get that kind of return on children? What did you do? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> Other than the fact that I just tried to put my family in the path of what God was doing. That was the goal, to bring truth around them, to have those around them that would affirm the truth of God around them, to, to, not, to, not, uh, to be okay that other people spoke into my children's life that I trusted, and that not only was I putting forth truth in their life, others were coming around speaking that same truth. And others were, other children were being raised in the same way in the light of that truth. That's really what it all came down to. Being raised in an affirmation of truth. Doesn't mean anybody was perfect in any of this scenario. The parents included. But it does mean there was that intentionality of putting them in the path of truth. And that's what we got to look at. And that, that's really what Paul was saying. He's talking about the steadfastness of your faith. But then just before that, he's talking about standing shoulder to shoulder. And it's literally that idea that we're coming together not only to be a church family, but to defend the truth of God's word. How do you defend it? Well, first of all, you got to know it. You got to be discipled in it. You got to be equipped in it. You got to be encouraged in it. You got to be convicted in it. That's what God's calling us to. That's the only way our faith can become steadfast. Next, we see a pattern that truth would be established. And there's two words that describe how we are to be grounded and established in faith and in truth. And the first word is a word called justification. And Paul doesn't come out and say the word itself. But look at what he says in verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. That idea of received, that means you, you have welcomed him in. You, there's something that took place in your life that you received him. For the individual, look on your outline, it's instant. 
It's an instant moment where you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And have, have received speaks of literally an idea of an event that takes place. Something that you can go back to from the very beginning of your faith when you saw God reaching out to you and you responded. That was the beginning of this word called justification. And it literally means that you've been made right before God. Because, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you've received the benefits of that finished work because you received Jesus himself. And, and so he's very clear. But secondly, justification is initiated by the Holy Spirit. And so our standing before God, how, how did all this take place? Well, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. Here's what he says. Therefore, I made known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Literally, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit will always present Jesus as truth or in truth. If no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit has initiated this grand work that God's doing in our life. And it all stems from truth. Truth came to us. We receive what God, the God of the universe has done through his son. We've received that into our lives. Next, justification means has been declared righteous. Now, how many of you in this room would say you're perfect? There's probably one or two of you. You just don't want to raise your hand, but no. Hopefully all of us say, not perfect. But did you know that if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do you know how God the Father sees you based on the finished work and the authority of God's word? You're perfect. Does that not blow your mind? Because only holiness and perfection can be received by God. You never met that perfection, but the one you called upon did you received him and as a result there's perfection that's found in christ and that's how he sees you isn't that amazing when you know it's amazing even further when god the father saw jesus on the cross he didn't see jesus you know what he saw your sin my sin today when he sees us you know what he sees not our sin anymore he sees jesus but it all comes by way of a fact that we received him as our Lord and Savior. It was initiated by the Holy Spirit of God. He worked that, that detail out in our life. And now, because of that, we stand declared righteous and acceptable before God. Next, justification also means we've been redeemed and reconciled. There's a verse there. I hope you'll look up that. I, I don't have time to cover all that. That we have been saved from sin's penalty. Isn't that a cool thing? See, sin's penalty, you know what it is? You know what the Bible says it is? God's wrath. God's wrath has to be poured out on sin. That's the penalty. Where was God's wrath poured out for our sin while Jesus was on the cross? That means we will never have to deal with that. That's not in our future. The wrath of God touching our life because we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Next, we've been given spiritual gifts. He, listen, he, here's, what, here's what we're learning in this. When we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we receive that. There's some things that are added to the package. And, and everything that's added is, listen, is to promote more truth in and through who we are about who Jesus is. Even through the giftings that he gives us. 
Next, justification also means we have started the race. The, the word Lord in verse 6 implies that God calls the terms of the race. It's amazing to me the arrogance of people who basically when they talk about heaven and hell, when they talk about Jesus, when they talk about all these things, that they want to set the terms for their own salvation. It's amazing. I hear people say, well, I'm good enough. I hadn't done anything bad enough for God to send me to hell. That, that's the kind of ways you hear it. Well, here's what we need to understand. Every one of us was on our way to hell. Every one of us. And except for the Spirit of God intermeaning into our lives or, or coming into our lives, we would have never started this new life that God's given us through Jesus Christ. So we see it started by Him. But it's the Lord who's calling the shots. A second word that describes how we are established in truth is the word sanctification. Sanctification. The word sanctification has several ideas about it, but one thing is literally means it means to be set apart. Okay? So, so basically, when we came to know Jesus, there was justification. That means I was declared righteous. That means I'm in the right standing with God, not because of anything I did, but because of the grace of God, me receiving what he did through Jesus. Now I'm in, just, I'm in sanctification. Now the awareness of what that event meant in my life is becoming known God is doing a work in my life. It means set apart. Literally, it means set apart for the work of God. But guess what? It's all in the context of truth. All of it's in the context of truth now. Jonathan Paluda, he was at the Passion Conference this past week. Can you imagine 80,000 college students praising the Lord in one place? That's what took place this past week. But one of the speakers said this. Freedom comes through surrender. Victory comes through submission. It's different from what the world tells you. Some of you, here's what he said, some of you, you're here and you know the Bible, you've heard the gospel, but you've not found freedom in Christ or freedom in his truth. And some of you, you're here, you've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and you've got so much of the world in you that you can't enjoy the church, and you've got so much of the church that you can't really enjoy the world in you. And that made a lot of sense to me. That, that we're so much into the world that there's enough conviction that may be pulling us in the wrong way that we're miserable here. And then we come over here and we're in the church and now we're feeling the guilt of the world over here. And, and we can't rest in any of it. And there's no freedom in any of it. And, and that's where many people are living. But let me just say this. The truth of God's word, listen, is not only here to save us, but to make us better versions of ourselves. But ourselves really is not about ourselves. It's more of what Jesus wants to do in us. So a better, listen, a better version of ourselves, according to sanctification, is to look more like Jesus. To live in his truth. That is the best version of ourselves. How do we know this? Because it provides freedoms. How, how many of you have lived long enough and know enough about human tendencies and enough about yourself? to identify insecurity, insecurities in other people. Can, can you do that? I, I, I don't know it's because I deal with people all the time. I can spot insecurities. Some of them I know very well because of my own insecurities. <laughs> and some of them because of my wife's. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. But, but no, but you can see it. It's everywhere. And we're all dealing with it. 
We're dealing with insecurities. We're dealing with dysfunction. And those are those things that weigh us down. But according to God's word and the truth that's found in God's word, guess what? The freedom from those things comes by way of the truth of God. And that comes by way of his wonderful truth. So what does that look like? Colossians chapter 2, the second part of verse 6. He says, so walk in him. Walk in Jesus. He's the mystery that's out there, that a mystery now that can be understood. The mystery was who was God. Can we ever find anything in God that, that, he, that will make us right in him? Oh, yeah, the answer is Jesus, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden he says, now that you're in all that, walk in him. That's walk in Jesus. That's the idea. Do what Jesus would do. What else would you do? Well, be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Basically, what he's doing here in, in these verses, he's describing, look on your outline, a process. And the process is walk, be rooted, be built up, be established, and abounding in gratitude. Let's break this down. First of all, so walk. It's a continuous action. And it literally, every time you see the word walk in Scripture, it's talking about your daily life, your daily conduct, your daily reactions, your daily living. Okay? So he says walk. Your walk in him is the way you receive him. How did you receive Jesus? You received him through repentance by way of faith. How am I going to live each day in the process of sanctification? I'm going to live each day in faith with repentance. Now, why would I throw repentance in there? I don't know about you, but the more I'm around God's truth, the more I see my limitations, my weaknesses, and my very sin. How many of you have noticed that? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there, and you're dealing with all that. So how, how did I come to know Jesus? Faith and repentance. How am I going to continue my walk into Jesus, walking into freedoms, away from my insecurities and all those things that bound me up? Faith and repentance. And repentance. I hear people say, repentance is such a negative word. Is there another way we can say it? No, repentance. It literally means good. it's good. We're turning away from those things that are harmful to us and turning to those things that will deliver us in the truth of God's word. And that's what we see so clearly in Scripture. Colossians 1, so walk in him, how? Rooted, rooted in him. The, the life in Jesus is like a tree planted in soul. The part of the tree that you see on the outside is a reflection of what's going on deep on the inside. What the tree produces is dependent on what is going on below the soul. So the Christian God, for, for the Christian, God's word is the root that forms our life. And we draw nourishment from God's word. We draw nourishment from it. How do we do that? You're doing some of it right now. You're hearing from the word of God. We're not up here telling stories. We're not up here trying to, to, to humor you necessarily. Sometimes it comes out because we don't know what we're doing up here. So, no, no, let's skip all that. But anyway, but the point I'm trying to make here is the fact that God wants to nurture you through his word, whether you're here in your small group, in your daily walk, in your devotional life. He goes on, so walk in him rooted, but then he says, and build up. Making your life and building a structure out of it. And what does he want it to look like? Jesus, Jesus, the world would say, 
a better version of yourself. No. We're to look like who? Jesus. That's what we're to look like. How do we know what Jesus looks like? Get in his word and find out. That's how you become rooted and built up in him. It's through these means. It's very interesting. A, a sculptor with a large chunk of, chunk of marble one day was chipping away on the marble when a man came up and asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm making a statue of a horse. The man looked at the marble and said, that doesn't look like a horse to me. How are you turning that into a horse? And this is interesting. The sculptor said, it's rather simple. I'm just chipping away any part that doesn't look like a horse. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? I believe that's a picture of what sanctification is and what, Jesus, what God's up to through the Holy Spirit and what Jesus being the example of what we should look like. He's knocking off the pieces that doesn't look like Jesus. That's the goal. So we are like a tree. Jesus is the soul that feeds us. We're like a building. Jesus is the building builder that forms us. Then look at this. He goes on. He says, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. He's talking about something with solid footing. Have you ever looked at someone and thought, man, they are established in the faith? Yeah. You probably, what would be some of the things you'd be seeing? Man, this circumstance came into their life. It blew me away, their reaction to that. Lately, I, I, you can ask my wife, I, I, I've been to more funerals in the last six weeks than I've ever been in my life. And, and I mean, there's a lot going on. There, there's people, some of you going through this yourself. And, and, and you go into those situations, and especially the ones where I'm really close to the situation, and it's amazing to see how Christians face death as compared to those who are not. And it's amazing not only to see a Christian but a Christian who's established in the faith and how they face death. It, listen, if, if you've never been around it, you need to go try to find it because it will reassure your faith more than anything you've ever seen. It's when you see someone there and you know God's getting ready to take them home and they are ready. And, and they're on, in, in some ways you, you say, are they excited? <laughs> they seem to be. But not only that, it doesn't mean that fear's been displaced, but it means that the thing they're focused on is the eternality of what God has provided for them. That's what it's all about. And that's not just for the end of this life. That should be every day that we live, that we look at what God has prepared for us in eternity and become more and more about who he is. That means we're established in the faith. And then lastly, abounding in gratitude. He, he basically says, he says in verse 7, rooted, built up, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding, that word abounding literally means seeing its value working in us. It, it's something that's pouring through us, like a river overflowing. It, it's happening in us and overflowing. In it, how? With thanksgiving. We're to look at this whole process with thanksgiving. Let me ask you something. When God's knocking off those sharp edges that doesn't look like Jesus... Is it painful at times? Is it sorrowful at times? Is it difficult to walk through sometimes? Yeah, it's every bit of that. But the thing that we need to be grateful for is the fact that God's still in control. He's the one who's doing the work. He's the one that we're trusting. So if you put these words mentioned in verses 6 and 7, look, walk, rooted, build up, establish, all point to a process. And then you tie Philippians 1, 6. It says, he who's begun a good work in you will what? He's going to complete it. He, there's, there's, a, there's a process of this, but there's an end to it, and there's a goal, and there's a purpose behind it.
Let me tell you about something. When, when, when I'm not grateful, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Every time I go back and I look at my life and I'm not grateful for what God's done in my life, I tend to open up a door for Satan to work in my life. I've noticed that. When discontentment comes in my heart, and I may be seeing these wonderful things God is doing, and I may be able to sit there and count my blessings. I have a wonderful family. I have a wonderful wife. I've got children that are living for the Lord. I've got, I, I can sit there and name all these things, but all of a sudden, if I get to a point where I'm not acknowledging these blessings and, and being in tune with what this process God's working in my life, I can sit back and think, not be grateful that's when I've noticed the enemy is alive and well creating that whole unholy discontentment in my life we've got to be satisfied with the work of God well how does he describe it in verse 7 abounding in it seeing it seeing that it works living in that Knowing that God is working with my insecurities, knowing he's trying to bring about freedoms in my life when the world is saying, no, hold on to those things, and the enemy's being the cheerleader of it all. And then lastly, as we, I'm going to go quickly, sanctification is being influenced by the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you don't know the voice of the Holy Spirit, two things are going on. Either you haven't been discipled in identifying what he's doing, or number two, you've never come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because the Bible is very clear. When I accept him, when I receive him, there's a new me on the scene. And it's not me necessarily as much as it is the Holy Spirit bringing awareness and his work into my life. Next, sanctification is being transformed. There's something going on. God is up to something. Sanctification is being renewed. I'm being renewed. Sanctification is being saved from sin's power. That literally means I can't walk around and say, the devil made me do it. That doesn't mean that's just the way I am. All that goes out the window. We're not under the power of sin anymore. It's been conquered. Sanctification is producing spiritual fruit. There's going to be evidence when this work is happening in my life. And also, sanctification is running the race. The race that's laid out before us. The journey that God has for us. The purposes behind the life we have. So here's the application. Are you experiencing the truth and reality of Jesus? Or do you just know facts about him? And then this. Is your faith, could it be described, rooted, built up, and established in God's word? To the point that it could withstand the deception and fallacies of this world. I want to ask you right now, if you would, just to bow your heads. And, and, and I just, let's make this sermon personal this morning. I want to ask you, is the reality of the work of God a reality in your own personal life? Do you see a work going on in there? Doesn't mean you're perfect. Perfection will only take place when we see him face to face. But it does mean you're in a process. I don't know about you, but my journey in this whole thing has been one of such where I've seen a lot of growth. And if you were to come to me and say, you know, how real is your faith right now? I would say it is abounding. It's overflowing. I'm seeing how the benefits of all this is really happening in my life. And it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And then there's been seasons in my life where I feel like I've just been stagnant. 
And, and, and I don't know about you, but when I'm stagnant normally in my faith, I'm, I'm miserable. Kind of gone through a season like that recently. But the point is this. It's either a process I'm fully aware of that's going on that excites me, or when it's not happening, I'm pretty miserable. And I feel out of place. That's some of the greatest evidence that I know that I'm a child of God. Not that it's perfect all the time, but when I'm in it, it's amazing. And when I'm out of it, I'm just miserable. I've been in both. And you know what? It, that misery is intended to bring me back to that understanding of who he truly is. And once again, live the truth he's called me to live. Father, I just pray for each person in this room right now, Lord. I don't know where they are. I know as a, as a new year flips on the calendar, many times people have resolutions and all these different things they want to do and say and, and try to do this and try to do that. But Father, help us to realize the try-tos are not going to work in this situation. It, it's, a, it's a total work that you're doing in our lives. And the, the try-to that we have is to submit to surrender to that work, to fall in love with truth, to stand shoulder to shoulder with other believers, affirming and reinforcing that truth, not only in ourselves, but those around us, to be able to count on you to know that even though it's most difficult, you're still for us and not against us. You're still doing a great work in us. Father, help us to rest in that in 2023. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you'll give us a word from you, Lord, as we leave here today. It may not be everything that was discussed here today, but I know how your Holy Spirit works in my life, Father. There's that one thing, that one thing that you're pressing upon my heart and maybe the hearts that are here today. Help us to leave here desiring victory in that one thing that you've showed us here today. Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, they've never begun this process that we've talked about. I pray that before they leave here today, they'll talk to myself or another pastor. Father, have your way during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us this morning?